and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Jennifer L. Brinkley, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies at the University of West Florida. We will discuss her article, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Examining Her Path to the High Court Bench and Its Intersection with the ACLU, which was published in the Lincoln Memorial University Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jen. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's a real pleasure to have you on the program. I really enjoyed reading really reading your article and learned a lot about Justice Ginsburg from your article. And it's a double pleasure to have a graduate of the University of Kentucky College of Law on the show as well. Yes, I am so excited to hear from you. I'm hoping to make it up to see the new law school soon. So I'm very proud to be a UK law alum. <laughs> well, we can't wait to have you, and I will be delighted to <laughs> to give you a personal tour of the building. Yes. Although, honestly, I think uh, Dean Davis is uh, much better at giving the tours <laughs> than I am, especially because she's really one of the people who is responsible for the building being as successful as as it is. So, if I may, I recommend getting a tour from from. Dean okay. <laughs> yes, I've been. I've definitely been keeping up with all of her emails and videos, and uh, just. Being thrilled with the progress of cool. the building. So cool. Well, so Jen, maybe we could start by you just reflecting on the history of Justice Ginsburg's career. Because I mean, I have to say that reading your paper, you know, there was a lot of background and detail about her life and career and experiences that I wasn't I wasn't familiar with before reading the article. And, you know, it really spoke to me about the experience of being a woman and being a woman lawyer in the period of time in which Justice Ginsburg was going to law school. Yeah. So I think there's a lot about Justice Ginsburg, but also, as you say, legal profession, uh, female legal professionals in that time period that people either don't remember or just don't know about. Um, And so when I was really starting to get into uh, reading about um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that's what I find most fascinating about her life is, I mean, she's just had this incredible life with all sorts of adversity. And she really is the type of person who, if you look up the definition of persistence, I think her face should be the first one you see, um, because she has overcome all sorts of gender discrimination. She's overcome uh, family issues, and um, cancer has hit her family very, very hard. And so, but she is someone that just keeps going. And um, she was always uh, someone that, um, if you asked her during her time in um, litigation in the 1970s of, of women's law issues, she'll just modestly say, oh, I was just in the right place at the right time. Um, but really, she has been just such a driving force in her life of this idea of repairing the world around her and um, taking people with her and giving credit to those uh, whose work came before her to motivate her. So when I was working on this paper, I really wanted to um, give an, a history of where she came from. And that's what I find most fascinating about her is really the work that she did in the 70s. All of the things she's done on the court are, are, are equally impressive. But really in the 1970s, when she was a law professor and wanting to make changes um, before the Supreme Court 
just very small, incremental, gradual changes in order to move gender equality forward. That, to me, is really what's fascinating about her life. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe you could you could dig a little bit into some of the kind of the details, like maybe even starting with her experiences in in law school. Like, what what was it like for her to go to law school at the time that she did? And I wonder if you could kind of pick out some of the ways in which the treatment of her and other women reflected a kind of bigotry that we just wouldn't accept today? Sure. So um, she went to undergrad at Cornell and at Cornell is where she met her husband, Marty Ginsburg. And he was really just a fascinating, I keep using that word, but really all of this is so fascinating to me. He was just um, not a typical person of the time. He was very progressive. He was wanting to make sure that this person whom he loved so fiercely was uh, given every opportunity that he had. And so as their relationship progressed, they decided that they wanted to go in the same career. And at the time, um, he was thinking about Harvard Business School for his graduate degree, but Harvard Business School was not uh, permitting females. And so uh, this was also the time when they were at Cornell during uh, McCarthyism and the Red Scare. And um, uh, RBG really had some great professors at Cornell that showed her that lawyers have such a role in um, creating long-lasting change. And so that's really where she began falling in love with this idea of um, changing uh, pathways for people um, through the use of the law. And so she she encouraged her husband to be, to um, think that law school was the right path for them. And so um, that's what they did. Ultimately, they were both at Harvard. He was a year ahead of her. And she was a class, in a class of over 500 students, there were nine women. And when she first came, uh, the dean of the Harvard Law School had a, basically, um, uh, dinner at the beginning of the the school year where visiting scholars came and were the uh, dinner partners for uh, the female students. And each of the female students had to answer the question of, why are you here taking the spot uh, that could go to a male? And so that was her first introduction. Um, Now, she had already faced some gender discrimination when she had lived in Oklahoma prior to coming to Harvard. Um, Her husband uh, had to do two years um, as a gunnery uh, sergeant in Oklahoma. She went with him. She got pregnant with their first child, and um, she was demoted at work based on that pregnancy. And so, and she'd also... um, uh, seeing how hard her mom had had to work um, as a stay-at-home mom and uh, would say that she wished her mom had had the opportunity to continue to work um, because she thought she would have been happier. So, I mean, she's seen these these instances growing up. And at law school, um, she made the law review, and there was a time when she had to go to a library to check a site, um, but only men were admitted. And she begged the guard, let me in, <laughs> I need to check this site and um, was not permitted in. Also, there were no female restrooms in the building, so final exams were very difficult for women. Um, Sometimes professors at the Harvard Law School would have um, ladies' days where they would only call on women. Others, uh, professors refused to call on any women at all with the Socratic method. 
So it was a difficult time. And if, um, if you read about her, she will tell you that she felt very much like she had to um, always be on, always be a representative of the female gender. And that was a lot of pressure, um, coinciding with the fact that she was a mother. She had a toddler and her husband came down with testicular cancer um, while they were both at law school. So that's really when she started learning how to operate on two or three hours of sleep a night. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I got to say the the library incident really jumped out. Isn't that me. crazy? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, I, I mean, the behavior was just so, so petty and so needlessly cruel. It's right. just hard to imagine how anyone could have rationalized treating people like that. Right. And, and, you know, that is when she, when she moves on to her work in the 1970s as a law professor and as, um, uh, really getting the fire under her for becoming a, uh, a protector for gender equality. I don't want to say women's rights because she was always of the perception um, that it was uh, women's and men's rights and that um, uh, it wasn't just to benefit one. By benefiting one, you benefited both. Um, but so during this time in the 1970s, you know, she really sees herself as a force of education, a teacher, if you will, um, before the Supreme Court in taking these cases that are um, finally getting the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment to apply to gender discrimination cases. She really saw her her role as educating um, legislators and the justices on the bench for whom she was advocating before, because their idea was, well, you guys get to stay in a home and you don't have to deal with the messiness of the world and you don't have to be in the military and you don't have to do jury duty. And what she was really trying to educate them about is that you are making us second class citizens um, by doing that, you know, let us out of the cage. Um, and so that was really how she saw her, her role was um, really as a teacher to try to change that mentality. And she did it in very strategic incremental steps. So, um, you know, it's funny because she has this huge reputation as, oh, this, you know, this liberal activist, but she's very much an incrementalist and um, very much someone that thinks change that happens gradually is the better way to make change. Mm. Well, so I wonder, Jen, if you could talk a little bit about uh, Justice Ginsburg's move into academia and sort of how she became affiliated with the ACLU. And what I really one of the one of the things I really liked about your paper was the way that you kind of talked about and characterized her really distinctive approach to this kind of impact litigation. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that as well. Sure. So um she spent two year, two years at Harvard. Um, you know, Harvard Law Review or Law Review, top of her class. Um, And I had mentioned that her husband was a year ahead of her. He did survive testicular cancer and um, ended up being one of the, if not the best tax attorney in uh, New York City. So he got a great job at a law firm in New York. She talked to the dean at the Harvard Law School and said, um, you know, I'd really like to have my Harvard degree. Is it okay if I go with my family? and uh, finish up at Columbia, but still get a Harvard degree. And this exception had been made um, for male students in the past for different circumstances. I mean, obviously, this was a very specific circumstance with, with the health of her husband, and she, she just didn't want to be away from her family. 
Uh, the dean said no. So she ended up transferring to Columbia and her reputation really preceded her. I mean, the students at Columbia were uh, put on notice that uh, a, an incredibly smart person from the East Coast was transferring to their school. Um, and a lot of students weren't happy about that because, you know, they were concerned about their own ranking. <laughs> but um, she ended up joining the law review at Columbia. So not only was she on Harvard's law review, but she was on Columbia's as well. Um, made great uh, relationships with some professors while at Columbia. And um, again, finished, uh, I think, tied for the top of her class at Columbia. So she did have interviews at law firms, um, but no one would hire her. And her position was, I had three strikes against me. I was female, I was a mother, and I was Jewish. And so she really relied on one of her law professors at Columbia to try to get a job. You know, she's this incredibly bright person that is more than capable of um, great research and writing and nobody would hire her. And so they tried to get her with Justice Frankfurter on the Supreme Court. Um, he was not ready to hire a woman. She really wanted to clerk for Judge Learned Hand um, he did not want to tone down his uh, salty language in front of a woman, so he said no. Um, and so finally, the professor called Judge Palmieri and said, if you do not have a proposal for you, I want you to take her as your clerk. If you don't, I'm never going to give you another Columbia law grad as a clerk. But also, I'm going to sweeten the deal that I have a plan B backup plan and um, a, a male attorney working at a law firm was going to be given um, a release from the law firm to take her place if she failed miserably. So that was the, that was the deal for her to um, get that clerkship. And of course she did wonderfully. She was, she was always prepared. Um, she and the judge became uh, very close and it was after that that she was given an opportunity to uh, work with a judge in Sweden on um, a civil procedure uh, casebook. And so she did that and then had the opportunity to move into academia at Rutgers. Um, so she taught at Rutgers, um, ended up also teaching at Columbia. Um, and it was really during this time that her students were saying, hey, you know, we're just coming off the civil rights movement. We're coming off this women's rights movement. You know, uh, Vietnam was going on and busing and the Equal Rights Amendment was was all up in the air. And so they asked her if she would uh, do a women in the law course. And so she said, well, sure, I could do that. And spent about a month reading everything there was to know about women in the law, because unfortunately there wasn't a, a lot of scholarship or um, a lot of readings for her to look at. Um, and so that's really what kind of started forcing her um, into this idea. But again, she'd had all of these indignities, right, that she's faced. She's, she faced her mom not being able to um, go to college, but having to work and pay for her brother to go to college. And then she saw how hard her mom, when she was sick with cancer, was still trying to save money so Ruth could go to college. And she had issues at, um, you know, Harvard with um, uh, not being able to check sites or, you know, uh, being just put in terrible positions based on what she says is something that is a characteristic from birth. Mm -hmm. And so when she was in Sweden, that also opened her mind because 
there were so many more women in law school in Sweden. And the conversation there in the 60s was already about men and women having equal pay and equal responsibility and in, in home and, you know, home responsibilities. So, um, so she has seen this and all of that was kind of on the back burner. And then she um, got involved with the ACLU, the Women's uh, Rights Project. Uh, she was asked to co-found that. And um, really, that's when she had a very small staff. She had a very small uh, office. Um, but that is when they all started working together to figure out how to bring um, cases before the Supreme Court that could apply the Equal Protection Clause to gender discrimination. Um, and the first brief she wrote um, for that was in a case called Reed versus Reed, which was a, a fascinating case out of, um, out of Utah, um, and where basically the statute said, if you want to be an executor of an estate, then um, it doesn't matter who files first. If a male and a female file, the male is going to be um, going to be the one that is going to be able to uh, administer that estate. And so she saw a lot of these sex-based differentials in statutes across the country and really tried to um, educate legislatures, but also bring cases before the court about why these were detrimental. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing that I thought was really interesting about several of the cases that you mentioned that she litigated was how frequently she actually brought cases with male plaintiffs as a way of obtaining kind of gender neutral or um, you know non-discriminatory outcomes. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that strategy and why you think that was effective. Yeah, so she really liked using those kinds of cases where you had a male plaintiff um, that had been injured in some way because of the law. So, um, and again, I think that harkens back to the fact that she was um, seeing herself as somewhat of an educator. And so again, you know, that you have this mentality of, oh no, women are being treated so much better than men. Um, And it was bringing these cases where, hey, no, the male is injured here by these type of sex-based differentials and educating the court how it could go both ways. So one of her, um, I would say probably uh, favorite cases had to do with um, Stephen Weisenfeld, um, who had been married. His wife had been the primary breadwinner. She had been a teacher and she died during childbirth. And so he, if he had been a female who had lost her husband, he would have uh, received benefits so he could have stayed home with the child. Um, but because he was a male, uh, basically the idea was you're a male, you can get a job. There's no reason for you to, why would you even want to stay home with a child um, at this point? And he didn't think that was right. And so he wrote an op-ed in, in, his, new, in his newspaper um, in his community. And somehow that got to, um, I think a colleague passed that to RBG. And so they took that case to show how, you know, that, uh, requirement for survivors benefits for one gender and not for the other was really very silly and, um, was evidence of how males could be hurt by this idea. Um, And then a case she calls her frothy case is one called Craig v. Boren. 
out of Oklahoma where um, you had a, a student who was a fraternity brother um, unhappy because he had to wait until he was 21 to purchase um, near beer, which is like 3.2 alcohol percent. Um, and women could purchase it at a much younger age. I think it was 18 or 19. And so he coupled with um, <laughs> a woman who was a part owner. Uh, her and her husband owned uh, an establishment called the Honk and Holler. And so this case came before the, the Supreme Court. And that statute was struck down. You know, the, the Oklahoma legislature said, hey, uh, you know, we've done this because men are more reckless and uh, more apt to drive drunk than women are. So we think that this is, you know, um, uh, uh, rationally related to this governmental interest, basically of protecting the public. And so the Supreme Court said, no, this is a clear um, sex-based differential. We're not going to allow that and um, struck it down, and then added some uh, a new level of uh, standard of review for these gender cases, which is where we get intermediate scrutiny. And so that came in the um, uh, about five years after Reed versus Reed, where equal protection was first applied to gender discrimination cases. Mm. And one of the things I thought was really interesting about your paper was you sort of teased out how it almost seems like Justice Ginsburg, like almost as a litigator, almost like single handedly changed the perspective of a lot of the people on the court. Like, I mean, it almost seems like they took up her language and her vision in a really interesting way. Is that, is, is that like a, am I right there? I, I think you are. And I think that part of that goes to how well she can just write. Um, you know, the Reed versus Reed brief in 1971, just, I mean, everyone was falling all over it because it was just so well-written. It was so easy to kind of walk away from and say, oh, well, of course, how could it, how could it be any other way? Um, so I think one of her strengths is definitely the way that she writes um, and the way that she tries to find consensus when she can um, among people that may disagree with her um, and bring them together. So, you know, obviously her relationship with Justice Antonin Scalia is a highlight of those efforts that she um, that she makes. And like I said, she really does think that, you know, change needs to happen slowly. And um by really moving slowly, by taking the proper steps and, and really being thorough and prepared and doing things at the right time, um, that's where she finds that change can be made in the, st in the way that she's wanting to ultimately lead it. Mm -hmm. Well, so, you know, maybe you can talk a little bit as well about Justice Ginsburg's transition from being this, you know, highly respected law professor and incredibly effective litigator to becoming a judge. And I, I, I got to say, I love the anecdote that you included in your paper about Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg. So I wonder if you could kind of work that in as well. Yeah, I mean, they were they were great friends on the court and they knew each other from when they worked um, in the D.C. Uh, circuit court. Um, and so she was appointed um, as a judge uh, to the D.C. circuit from uh, 
basically President Carter at the time um, and during his um, candidacy for president had said, I want to change the reflection of the federal judiciary. I want to see people of color. I want to see women on uh, being appointed to the uh, to federal judicial positions. And so she was one of those um, who was appointed uh, based on that change. And she spent time there. Um, President Clinton was the one that um, appointed her to the United States Supreme Court. Um, and he really wanted uh, uh, Mario Cuomo to be appointed. Um, that's who he wanted to announce. Uh, and so I think the anecdote you're asking is when he uh, basically was talking to you, Justice Scalia, that, okay, if you're, you know, stranded on this island or, or whatever, and you have to be with either Larry Tribe or Mario Cuomo as your colleague on, you know, the Supreme Court desert island, who would you choose? And he said, I would choose Reese Bader Ginsburg. And <laughs> I love that. I really do. I know. It's great. And, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you, if you research about her, she does not do small talk. She does not do chit chat. Um, and so she is not one of those people that are going to toot her own horn. And so in order to really get to the um, appointment stage, she had to have a lot of help. And so it was help like that from Justice Scalia or um, Marty's contacts. Um, I think uh, he had contacts with Ross Perot. And um, and so there were a lot of that he did, again, as someone who fiercely loved his wife, wanted to see her succeed. Um, you know, he left New York to come down to D.C. because, as he would tell people, my wife got a good job. So he was just very progressive in how um, he shared responsibility with her. And so, you know, and Scalia became wonderful friends. They shared a love of the opera. They um, actually, someone wrote an opera for them and they starred in it together. And, um, you know, they would, he would, he was a, you know, a prolific hunter. So he would basically kill the food and Ruth's husband, Marty would cook it and they would spend holidays together. And what a great story is um, they were in, I think, India, um, on some sort of talk or, or some meeting. And there's a famous picture of them on top of an elephant and she's in the back. And he said that a lot of her feminist friends were unhappy about that. And she said, no, 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 no. That had to do with the distribution of weight, which <laughs> is funny because, you know, Scalia was a larger individual and RBG could probably, you know, blow her over with a strong breeze sometimes, but she's incredibly strong willed and um, works out with a trainer and, and all of that. So looks can be quite deceiving, but yeah, they great friendship. They had a wonderful friendship and it's a great example. And I share this with my students of how if you are on one side of a spectrum and someone's on the other, it's still possible to meet in the middle. And that's what they did. You know, she loved his sense of humor. She said he would crack her up on the bench. She'd have to pinch herself to stop from laughing because he'd say jokes under his breath. I mean, they just had a great, respectful friendship. Um, didn't agree a lot on on how, you know, things should be interpreted, but um, certainly cared very much for each other. And his nickname for them was the odd couple. <laughs> so, so Jen, I, I mean, in, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little on sort of some of the observations you make 
in your paper about the way that judicial politics and in particular confirmation politics seem to have changed, right? Because I mean, like obviously Justice Ginsburg is an iconic figure today on the Supreme Court, but you really kind of openly question in your paper whether or not she could be confirmed today. And I wonder why you think that, whether you think that's a problem, and what, if anything, that tells us about the nature of judicial politics today. Those are all wonderful questions. And that's really why I started writing this paper was because as I was reading about her, I had seen that quote about, um, you know, her saying, oh, uh, my work with the ACLU would disqualify me now in these current times. And I got to thinking, I'm like, could she be confirmed today, you know, in 2016 or 2018 or or whatever current year you want to look at? Um, And I actually was able to meet her in June of 2016 and asked her um, if she thought she uh, uh, could be confirmed again. And her position was no, but she was very um, clear in, say, in, in not putting fault on one side of the aisle. Um, you know, she um, has talked about how in 1993, again, when she was going through the confirmation process, um, the, uh, we had just come off the Clarence Thomas confirmation process. And so the Senate was very um, eager to not have the type of uh, media um, around her confirmation. And so I think maybe there's some things there uh, where they were just wanting clearly to have someone um, that, you know, wouldn't ruffle a lot of feathers um, and get through the confirmation hearing and and be finished with it. Um, And so, and even Orrin Hatch at that time uh, was saying, you know, I think we we may disagree on some things, but I don't see any reason why, you know, you wouldn't be a great justice. And um, um, and so now I think her position as uh, politics has have gotten a little bit more partisan from her confirmation hearing is that uh, I think she's made a comment. He wouldn't touch her with a 10 foot pole at this point. Um, so I don't know. You know, I I. I think. I don't want to go so far as to say, no, she could not be confirmed again. So I may disagree with her a little bit about that. Um, I think it would certainly be an uphill battle. Um, and, um, you know, one of my former law professors um, has written a great book on Supreme uh, Court confirmation hearing. He has a lot of great data about, um, uh, you know, when they've been um, uh, the support that has been given to appointees from the Senate and, um, her name's Lori Ringhand. So that if anybody's interested about more uh, minute details about the actual confirmation process, I would definitely recommend um, checking her uh, research out. Mm-hmm. Well, Jen, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about Justice Ginsburg with me. Um, it was a real pleasure reading your article. Great to talk to you. And I'm so happy that a graduate of the law school is a fellow professor. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me.
Oh! <laughs>